Welcome to your April 2010 edition of Voices of Experience. I'm your host, Jared Bro. Our theme this year is Imagine. And in the next hour, our goal is to open your mind to the endless possibilities that await you and your speaking career. This month, Joe Calloway's Category of One features a speaker who questions whether you are a river flowing wide or a well going deep. And on Ones to Watch with Jane Atkinson, you'll meet a lady who is imagining ways to make her small training business much more than a simple training business. But first, this month, I decided to go backstage, not with a speaker, but with someone who books speakers. The economic downturn of 2009 hit many speakers hard, both financially and emotionally. Since most of us are independent business people booking one engagement at a time, we don't really know what trends might be taking place in the greater marketplace. So I thought it would be a good time to do a little litmus test. So I spent the day in the speakers bureau to find out if business is picking up there. What I discovered is reason for optimism. Hey, Eric, it's Gail Davis. How are you? Well, if you're getting on an international flight, I don't want to hold you down, but can you just tell me super fast, did everything go okay last night? Okay, yeah, I definitely want to get a full update. And then, are you still thinking you might need somebody for next month? For more than a decade, Gail Davis has been running a successful speakers bureau in Dallas, Texas. Like many of us, 2009 caused some anxiety for Gail. But 2010 is bringing optimism. I think things are very positive. We had a very strong January. We looked over our history of our company, which is almost 11 years, and January was either the second or the third largest closings for a given month. So I see that as very positive. And one of the things that I noticed is that it was a lot of short-term business. You know the model, and I know the model, 50% down on closing of the contract and then you pay the final payment later. Well, we had many instances where it just didn't, that wasn't even an option. You know, we were just making one payment because it was so short term. So I'm very optimistic, very encouraged. Why do you think it is that people are waiting until the last minute to book their speakers? Why is it that they're not booking far out as they've done traditionally? I think, uh, I think several things went into that um, last year, you know, Anytime you're in a corporate environment, sometimes you need to wait till the fourth quarter. And if you're managing a P&L and you've got money in there, you're worried that if you don't spend it, you won't get it the following year. So that's not uncommon in any economy for people to say, whoa, I've got some money here, let's do something. So that could be one thing. Um, I think when you know the whole debacle unfolded with events and spending money and flying people in, maybe people backed off a little bit just to let it pass over. And so by backing off or biding time, it created um, things happening in a shorter amount of time. Maybe people are just busy. I, I, I don't know. What are you seeing these days as far as the willingness of the client to spend money on a speaker, to spend money on travel? And are you seeing that they're trying to negotiate fees more than in the past? I think the strongest thing that I see is people don't want any surprises. And so surprises traditionally have occurred in the area of travel. Someone not knowing there was going to be this $150 car service or 
never in their wildest dreams when they agreed to a round trip coach ticket from Raleigh to Dallas that it was going to be over $500. So people don't want surprises. And if people have been burned in the past, they're bringing that experience to the table when negotiating the contract. And they might ask for something like, you know, a travel fee, a travel buyout, an all-inclusive fee, something to give them reassurance where they're not put in a position to have to justify a decision that a speaker made regarding travel. So I see people spending a lot more time on that. As far as negotiating fees, yes, I mean, there are clients that say, is that the best we can do? Or um, I'm, I'm working on something right now, which is really great. Two associations realize they're both having their meeting at the same hotel back to back. And so they're coming to me saying, if we can agree on two speakers, can we go to the speaker with a two for one deal? And I'm like, sure you can. Who wouldn't love that? So, you know. <laughs> Gee, can you do your speech twice? Mm, what do you think of this? Last year's convention was virtually depressing listening to how many speakers were complaining about business being off. Have you, did you go through a, a downturn at all from the bureau perspective? Did it stay level or did you see a dip like everyone else had? In June, I was convinced it was going to be horrible. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I, I'm not, I didn't, I don't have a degree in accounting or finance, but I know how to project out towards the end of the year. And I was like, oh, this is not pretty. Um, but then I just pulled the troops together and said, come on, we're going to, we're, we're, Steady on the course, you know, let's just work hard. And I think we worked harder. A lot of times we worked harder for less because what I did see is people saying, you know, we've always spent $20,000 in October. This year, you got to show me what you got for 15. So it was the same amount of effort, but a lot of times it was for a lower dollar amount. At the end of the day, it was the first time in 10 years that our revenue was not greater than the previous year, but by a very small amount. I can live with it compared to what I thought the number was gonna look like at the end of June. Interesting thing though, I was kind of surprised when I saw that because I had been so busy. So then I looked at a report for December of 2008 to see what in at that moment I had closed for 2009. And I compared that to December of 2009 and what I already had closed for 10. I have a very large book of business in place for 2010. So maybe it's that concept of people just being afraid of the exposure last year or, or just a lot of different components going into play. And so things, I was busy and I was booking stuff, but it's not gonna occur till this year. So I think this could be a very good year because we went into it with so much. What signals are you seeing in the industry as far as your clients and their willingness to spend again? Well, one, one challenge that, that I'm seeing is the people who used to have all the money, that money's starting to show up again, but by golly, they want something that's worthy of it. And maybe previously when someone would call and say, hey, I've got you know this great number and you'd throw out those top four or five names that you always book. Well, now you're getting a lot of no, that's old. That's not new. No, I've had that. No. And if they're going to spend, you know, what you and I would call significant money, they want to know that they're going to get a big return on that investment. So maybe another thing that, that happened with this past year when people had to bring their dollars down a bit is they became aware of something that I learned when I left EDS. And that is that 
you don't have to have a big fee to be an outstanding speaker. That's the biggest lesson I learned when I left EDS. Because there, I always spent at least $20,000 on a speaker. So no one ever told me this, but I somewhere in my mind thought that if your fee wasn't 20, you probably weren't any good. And the most shocking thing that I learned when I started doing this is that's not really true. You may not have name recognition, but you might even be better than somebody that has name recognition in a larger fee. So I don't know really what all that means for someone that's already a great speaker with a reasonable fee, but I think people that aren't great speakers with overpriced fees might be the ones who need to be really aware that they need to deliver. In order for Gail to grow her business, she's also had to add to her staff. This is Abilie. Hey. How are you? <laughs> and she is our speaker liaison. And you'll love this. This is uh, all the unsolicited stuff from speakers that we're just trying to get to, which I'm constantly writing her about, but how she's supposed to get to it all. So, so <laughs> since this is radio, let me just describe it. It's a pile about 18 inches high. And, yeah. oh, look whose name is on that oh, one that hadn't gotten read yet. <laughs> and what we try to do, and sometimes we make it this far, which is an interesting thing, you know, priority one, two, and three. See, those haven't even gotten in the system either. Okay, so you, so you for those of you in uh, Radio Land, we've got three boxes by the back door <laughs> underneath the Nato Prada shrine. Uh, <laughs> so we've got oodles and oodles of books. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, and then she Some CDs. Dog. Yeah. Okay. And, and the different, the, what the priority one, two, and three is, is probably priority one is someone that we book all the time and we really need to get that in there and uploaded. And priority two means that they're like on our website and other people book them as well and we need to get to them. And three, we probably looked in the system and never heard of them, so we'll get there. You know? Okay, so I'm just going to drop my card here. With <laughs> yeah. <my> priority one box. <laughs> now, this is Julie being the salesperson. And. Yes. She's been here four years, and she just moved into sales full-time about a year ago, and she's really knocking it out of the ballpark. And I think it's because she used to be the speaker liaison also, like Abilie was. Mm -hmm. So she really knows all the speakers. So she, um, you know, when people call and say, I want a speaker who can talk about such and such for a certain amount of money, I think we think of very different people. Often we work mm -hmm. very independently. Sometimes we collaborate with each other. Okay, the majority of my work is outbound to meeting planners and to my clients. Um, I very rarely talk to speakers anymore unless I am trying to book them with my client. We have somebody in the office who handles the speakers now. In, the old, in my old role, I spoke to speakers all the time, but I don't do that anymore unless I'm trying to sell them to a client and trying to get to know them better. And I do that quite a bit because you can't sell to a client unless you know a speaker because you don't want to present the wrong speaker to the client. And one of the things that we specialize in is making sure that we do not just throw speakers at our clients. We make sure we get to know what the client's looking for and that our speakers are well qualified for the client. So I spend my day responding, the beginning of the day, responding to emails, but after that I am making outbound calls, I am making outbound emails, following up with my clients or cold calling pr prospective clients and networking my way around to find clients and to service them and meet their needs for prospective speakers for their events. And putting proposals together is probably what I do in the afternoons after speaking to clients or if I get a really hot client right away and I'll spend par part of my time doing that. And at the end of the day, if I still have energy, <laughs> um, 
trying to get to know maybe some new speakers so that I am up to date on new speakers so that you can't fall behind. You can't just depend on your old speakers because there are new speakers all the time that are hot and, and, and that your clients need to know about. So if I find out about a new speaker now, I may wait to the end of the day and go, okay, who can I present this new speaker to because this would be a great speaker for. In fact, that happened about four weeks ago. Um, I'm trying to break into this client, was not able to do so because we have such tough competition. This new speaker hit my desk and I said, this would be great for this client that I'd never worked with before. Sent the idea out. He said, you know what? This is a great idea. Let me ponder it. He did. And two weeks later, we booked the speaker. How did you find this new speaker? We get new speakers because they are either referred to us by a speaker that we do a lot of business with. It can't be somebody off the street says, oh, I want to be a speaker. Or I've been a speaker for the last five years. Let me call this this bureau because unless they are referred to us, unless we have seen them speak, unless a client has referred them to us, we cannot just take any speaker because we have to have a history with that speaker. We just can't trust their word. We'd love to because there's so many great speakers out there, but we just can't because we can't take a chance that we're going to put somebody out there who's not the quality of speaker that we work with. So we take referrals from other speakers we take referrals from our clients especially I get to know other speakers because I talk to my clients and they say we just use so-and-so and he was fabulous or she was fabulous and that's how I get to know about other speakers really and truly but also um, other bureaus or other um, speaker management companies that we partner with they send us their best speakers this is our top speaker right now you need to know about this person and we trust their judgment as well mm -hmm. and that's how we know about our speakers another thing that, that sometimes happens is it seems that certain <clears throat> topics become very vogue you know it, it may be running its course now but this past year this whole concept of sustainability mm -hmm. it's been very popular and everybody wants and social responsibility uh, not social responsibility. Well, social mm -hmm. social media. Yeah, social media. And trying right to understand mm -hmm. all the different people out there speaking on social networking, and what component? Because there's, you know, social networking is this big. But how to develop your business using social networking is one topic. Being a concerned parent, and worrying about your kids and the social networking that's another topic. Um, I, I know we've seen mm -hmm. so you know hands-on, practical versus strategic. I mean, mm -hmm. it just goes on and on. And so you'll you'll find yourself landing on a certain topic over and over and that when she was talking about the end of the day and really understanding it sometimes mm -hmm. i have to take time and go okay what in the heck is social networking and how many different people are talking about it and what's what's unique about the different people because it's i started to learn that um there's so many layers. Mm -hmm. right? It's kind of like what Generation X and Y and all of that thing. It went through its its whole thing when the new generation, the millennials, came out. And everybody, you've got your speakers that started off in that area. And then everybody jumped on the bandwagon and everyone was doing it. And now we're seeing that with social networking or social media. And yeah. you've got a lot of people. But it's it's a hot topic because no to one knows what to do with social media right now. No yeah. one knows what to do. And you, you've got the corporate level. And then you've got, like you said, you've got your parenting level. And you've got your, how do I even use Facebook level and, and all of that. And your corporate response. And that'll always be huge, I think. But I think how, so. how do you really get it to the bottom line now is, is the big thing with it, not just being green. Let me ask this, all right. We saw over by Abilene's desk, there is an 18-inch pile of materials. There are oh, three yeah, boxes, priority here, one, two, three. More, there are more stacks here. There are, geez, 12 bookshelves, 16, 18, 20 bookshelves full of books. Uh -huh. So out of all of these people that you know, and all of these people who want to get your attention, 
how many of them do you kind of have in the Rolodex of your brain to go, are these the top 10 that we know we are always booking? Do we have a, a hundred that we book a year? How many speakers would you say you're different speakers would you say you book a year and how many of them are speakers that you book constantly and repeat? Yeah, I've thought a lot about that and I, and I kind of watched that. I think that our database has somewhere between 2,300 and 2,600 speakers because mm -hmm. sometimes we're taking people out for various reasons or adding people. So that's a big number. And a lot of times those people are in there just to be able to say, no, we called their office, that person doesn't speak. You know, I mean, I can, I can roll off the top of my head, you know, everybody wants Oprah to speak. Well, I mean, I know she does some speaking, but I think it's only for her have your best life events. I don't think she takes speaking dates. You know, so we've got people in there that don't even take speaking dates. This is an example. And I think it's about the same 200, mm -hmm. 225 right. speakers that we tend to book over and over. There are speakers that we've booked once or twice, but there's that group of 200 that we just we kind of go to all the time. Now we're constantly adding, adding, updating, and some sometimes, sometimes some people yeah. just get tired and it, it doesn't work anymore. Let's look at it from your client's perspective of the meeting planners. How many consistent uh, organizations come to you annually versus how many new meeting planner uh, or associations or whatever come to you? We did have a 10-year anniversary celebration last year. And so one of the drills that we went through is we generated a list of anyone who'd ever booked business with us and then we generated their booking history. And I actually acknowledged many of these people at the event because they had been with us either from that very first year or that second year. But the people that came, obviously, they're still with us. So, you know, we're blessed that we have a lot of long-term people. Um, but we also get a lot of new people, you know. Especially um, now with me really you get a lot of new people and then uh -huh. with me going into sales full-time I mean we've hit a lot of new clients that we've never done mm -hmm. done business with and 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 it's it's easier I can see you can see a lot from the board and I can see a lot from having done the accounting part of it too because I'm constantly putting new clients into mm -hmm. the system because mm -hmm. I'm seeing them That's because good. they're new because I mean we've never worked with XYZ company before mm -hmm. so I'm constantly adding them to the system which right. really makes it exciting and, and just recently we've done a whole bunch of new huge companies right. huge huge you, in the last three or four months I mean we've got there are very few that that and, and, oh they hurt but there are a few that you can think of that were great clients that for whatever reason mm -hmm. are not doing their event anymore mm -hmm. or you know they hired somebody who had a relationship with another bureau and, oh you just hate that you know but but that keeps you on your toes. I think if that never happened, you know, it keeps you on your toes. Mm -hmm. This month on the Category of One, Joe Calloway sat down and talked to Tom Winninger, who is a past president of NSA. But what is it that makes him stand out in your mind as a Category of One? In my mind, the reason I wanted to talk to Tom is because he's, the, he's a speaker's speaker. By that, I mean... If you want to role model somebody in career growth, Tom is one of those people uh, that you look to. Because the thing about Tom is he has always worked at getting better. He's never said, okay, I'm a great speaker. That part's done. Now I just need to do more marketing. Tom is always wanting to make his value to the client better. And that's what impresses me about Tom.
I mean, my boat got moving because I was working in small-town America doing presentations and realized small-town America was dying. Yeah. You know, the box stores were moving in, and everybody was saying to me, look who's coming to town. And I say, well, who's coming to town? And they said, well, Sam's coming to town. And that was kind of the thing Walmart. that triggered me. And so I found out that the good careers that I've watched really attach themselves to movements. And the movement becomes the thing that flows the boat. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, I got attached to Price Wars, which was the, the actual book. I got attached to Survival of Small Town America. I got attached to Family Small Town Business. And then Big Business decided they wanted to invest in somebody who knew about this. So you're, you're saying that speakers should, or at least one way to do it, is to attach yourself, just to pull a word up, to a cause. Exactly. Exactly. Thomas Friedman, you know, Friedman's from Minnesota, wrote the book, The World is Flat. Well, Friedman's a commentator. He was over in Bangalore and started seeing what was going on. And he attached himself to this movement and said, man, if you don't, you know, if you don't wake up in the United States and figure out that you're suppressing the intuitive nature of your people, you're never going to be America again. Mm -hmm. And that's going to go on for years. That's his movement. And everything he does is attached to his movement. movement. It's the same way. Speakers show me their brochures and they got a title on. I say, where's the pain? Where's the movement? Yeah. You know, making business successful. Whoopee. Let me ask you this. You talk about pain. What causes the pain that a lot of speakers experience in their careers? Or what do you think is a mistake or are some mistakes that a lot of speakers make? Well, the biggest mistake is uh, speakers don't listen to their audiences. So in other words, they come up with this great idea. They think everybody's interested in it. They go to all the work of putting it together. Then they get no bounce. Speakers get no bounce. They expected it to work. It didn't. It came out flat. I always said, we own a little qualitative research company, but I always did this. I never asked an audience whether they like my speech or not. I said, what did I say you want to know more about? Or what didn't I talk about you want to know about? And what's the thing that bothers you the most in what you're doing? And I collected thousands of these cards. And all of a sudden, I started seeing the confluence of similar things coming up to me. You know, I can't get my people on board with where I'm going. Yeah. That was huge in my audience. And so you're saying that too many speakers stop with, did you like my speech? Exactly. Rate me on a scale of 1 to yeah. 10. Did I have content? But they never ask what the content was that lit them up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'm not making fun of this. It's just... I watch meeting planners pass out these sheets, and they give me these sheets on ratings, and my sheets weren't always the best. I mean, I talk too fast, I'm short, I'm a little overly passionate sometimes, and that's what people would pick out. I said, no, we're missing it. In the midst of that, what is it? And that's where the whole ideas came from about price wars and, and being a pricing expert. And, you know, pricing expert for me is just the umbrella in which you help people create value. Your career seems to me... Went through, you kind of shifted the way you're thinking about your career and what speaking's all about and what, what good you can do. Seems like a few years ago I detected a shift. Yeah. What's been going on with you the last few years? Is your speaking different now or is your purpose different than it was 15 years ago? Well, I think it's gotten enhanced. I think it's a PhD now, you know, rather than, you know, an undergraduate degree. But what I typically found out was the quality of the way the business purposes itself draws itself to importance in the market. So if your product is your purpose, you're not going to make it. If the application of your product is your purpose, you probably have a better shot at it. Okay, wait, back up a second, because I think that's a really important thing for people to hear. If your product is your purpose, Purpose. you're not going to make it. What do you mean by that? Because then you're just a functional provider of a product somebody can compete with. That's the reason. uh, And in our case, the product being a speech. speech. The speech, rather than what the speech does, where they take the speech, 
you know, how they build on the speech. Now, I'm not talking about the speech, but the content. Yeah, exactly. And then, so it's... Uh, it's actually in the purpose, and then you've got to purpose your organization in the purpose so you have sustainability, because in the energy of your audiences or in the energy of your staff yeah. is the future of your company. So if you can't take the product, get it to application. So we, you know, I work in the um, it's mattress business, but we don't call it that anymore. We not call it sleep products. Well, we even moved it beyond that. Now we call it great sleep. Now, people aren't making mattresses. They're providing a product that helps America sleep because they're not sleeping. I'm saying, how can you elevate that purpose? Here's what happened to me, though. This was interesting. I kept looking for ideas, and I got so loaded with ideas that none of them seemed to be important. And I woke up one day. It wasn't one day. And I said to myself, there's some truths buried in here. I need to get to the truths of this stuff because I can hook the ideas onto the truth, but the truth is what sustains itself. And that's how I got started in this. That's when I went back to school for a master's degree in, in well, philosophy and theology. Because I found out I don't need an MBA in new ideas or how to execute new ideas. I need to find out why things work in spite of themselves. And I discovered this one truth that I was actually speaking on. And the truth was, it's not what you sell, it's what the customer buys. And I thought, wow. And so I, I built a little process around that, gave it to companies. And they said, wow, that's it. That's it. Yeah. What have you done in your career that just absolutely flopped, that didn't work? Well, I thought I could write a book on anything, and I wrote a book on hiring smart. <laughs> well, the companies were saying to me, I've got all these great stuff from you, Tom, but I don't have the people to execute the stuff you're, yeah. you're bringing to us. How do I hire and retain the best people? So, you know, thinking I could do anything, walk on water, get out of the boat, you know, perform miracles. I wrote this little book called Hiring Smart. And overnight, I started being invited to human resource meetings. And I'm going, uh-oh, this ain't it, you know. And they're, they're all judging me on whether they like me or not, not the quality of my material. So what I did was I lowered the penetration in my market to a focus that had no future for me. And I got caught in it. And it took me about 24 months to break out of this. I mean, I basically had to dump the book and then couldn't get it back. So I think that's it. I think I watch this in a lot of speakers. See what you do. Oh, I can do that. See what you do. Oh, I can do that. Somebody asks you for something. And rather than judging the future viability of it, it's like a retailer. Somebody comes in and says, you carry this. So they, for one request, they go get it, stick it on the shelf. Have you found yourself saying to a potential client that calls and says, Tom, could you come give a presentation on? Have you found yourself saying, you know, I could, but I'm not going to, because that's really not what I do. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, but I got to slap myself, you know, before and after it, you know, to say, is this a movement I should be attached to? Or is this just an idea somebody came up with? But no, that's true. I was well, what you're saying is it's very seductive to speakers, isn't it, to say, you know, I could do that. Right. But that doesn't mean you should do it. Right. Is that kind of the point you're making? Yeah. And that really hit me hard because I've always been the business leader's business guy. But then they hired me to speak to their people. And that wasn't for me. You can't put me in an audience of middle managers and say, excite my people, because my stuff is for the business owners, business guys. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't going anywhere all of a sudden for me. And I had to back off this. So now, you know, if you want me to speak to your employees, you know, I'm really sorry. I'm not the right guy. If you want me to speak to your principal members of your organization about what they can do with your employees, that's really where I'm at. I always say you got to say no to get to yes. Yeah. And you say yes too much, 
you never figure out what no is. I think that's a huge, huge lesson for speakers to hear. Know when to say no. No one to say no. Tom, after being in this business for quite a while, what's the the best advice you could give to any speaker, whether it's a beginning speaker or somebody that's been doing it for 20 years? Write your own stuff and give your own stuff. And always write. Even if you can't write, write. I sat down with a person this morning, and she said, I can't write an article, so I showed her a little organizational chart on how to do that. I really believe the quality of what I was doing and the depth, because I believe speakers are wells or rivers. A river is things that flow into shallow water and they don't know why they're there. They just want to spread out as far as they can and a well goes deep. That when you, when you get to the point of putting something on paper, you force yourself to go deeper into where you're at. And that's the thing I didn't do for years because I'm a verbal guy. About five years ago, I started writing seriously. And I write now all the time. Get an idea, write it. 800 words a day and just keep writing. And all of a sudden, in the midst of this, my quality gets, gets deeper. My conceptualization gets deeper. Um, and I've got a lot more flow out there now. Who are the people in this business that you admire, that you've looked at and just said, wow, that's, that's worth emulating or that's inspiring to me? Well, I'm always reluctant to give names, but, you know, Lou Heckler has always been one for me. Only because he went with his flow, he goes with his flow, he does his flow, and he knows his flow. And, uh, and that's him. And nobody can emulate him for where he's at and how he does it because it comes from the being of him. And I think when I look around, whenever I see somebody that is the speaker, that's the being of them, you know, like Aristotle would say, the metaphysical nature of the person is what they are. A tree is a tree. That's who I look at. And I go, they looked in. They didn't look out. And a, tr- a tree in. is a tree, and Lou Heckler is pure Lou Heckler. Absolutely. Yeah, And you're pure Winninger, and it's a pleasure that you did this for us. Thank you so Thanks, much. John. It's great being with you. Okay. This month on Ones to Watch, Jane Atkinson is joining us, and the person that you've chosen to watch this month is Colleen Francis, and um, she speaks on sales, and what strikes me is, you know, as we try to find what differentiates people and, and picking lanes like you focus on every month, why do we want to watch someone else who does sales? Well, you know, I, I don't really know Colleen's exact angle on sales. But what I do know is that her clients love her and that girl is busy. You know, that's why I think she's one to watch. She is developing some systems and some processes that are really working with her and her clients. And uh, I've just continued to watch her career climb and climb and climb over the last few years. She's terrific. We have a sales training company called Engage Selling Solutions that focuses on sales training for um, companies in North America. And we consult and we train and we coach, provide online resources. You have uh, been reaching new levels a lot in your career. You've been in the business for eight years. Tell us a little bit about some of the more painful times that you went through. (laughs) Well, you know, as a sales trainer, the first couple of years weren't really all that difficult for me because I know how to sell and I was able to get clients. And what happened in my career is the first year was great. The second year was great. The third year was great. And then my business plateaued. And in fact, about the fourth and the fifth year, we saw a real flattening off of revenue and then a dip, which really scared me to death. And it took um, some time stepping back to realize that what I had forgotten to do was to sell. And that 
we got so busy, of course, delivering, doing the stuff that you love to do that you start to think, wow, this is never going to end. And then you wake up one day and all of your prospects have dried up and there's no one left in the pipeline and no business to sell to. And it actually took the wisdom of my husband, who didn't work with me then, to say to me, well, Colleen, maybe you should start doing those things that you tell your customers to do, which is a difficult lesson to hear from your spouse. Take take my advice. I'm not using it, that whole thing. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, But he was right. And I had to step back and really look at putting those processes into place. Okay. I think that's a great lesson for our listeners because so many people are so busy working in the business mm-hmm. that they forget to feed the pipeline and they're they're just scrambling to do what they can yeah. to survive. Absolutely. <laughs> and when we're speaking all day, you can't sell because then you come home at night and your clients are home and there's no one to talk to. So we really have to learn how to leverage our time so that we can sell even when we can't talk to clients during the day. So what are all the things we can do in our business that will sell us even when we sleep or sell us, have multiple people sell us as well. So let's talk about some of those things. What do you have in place that is continually planting seeds for you? Well, I have a full-time staff member, one person. She doesn't do any selling for me because I made a decision in my business that if I was going to be the sales expert, maybe I should still sell direct. Um, But that being said, we leverage technology a lot. And our biggest, one of our biggest sales lead generation pieces is the articles that we write. And I have to give credit to uh, Jeffrey Gittimer for that because I heard him speak at my first NSA conference and he said, money comes from writing. And if we write and we put it out there and we give away that value, that we will get business in the future. Mm -hmm. So we took that model and started creating articles every couple of weeks and not just publish them in our own e-zines, but to really look for those other expert sites or portal sites where our clients might be visiting and get our articles out there. And we probably publish articles on anywhere between 30 and 100 sites every single month, depending on who wants what article. Wow. So you're really out there. And that helps keep the phone ringing, I trust. Uh, Absolutely. Every month we get inquiries from people who say, I read your article on such and such a site, and we want you to come and talk to us about that. Yeah. How do you get them on so many sites? How do you get those articles out there? Well, there's two ways. Uh, One is kind of reactive, I suppose. First of all, we publish all of those articles on our own website. So our website is content heavy. And what we found is that the more articles we have on our site, the more people come to us and say, can I republish that? So when I say reactive, we don't look for those sites, they come to us. And that's been really helpful in getting our articles published internationally. The second thing we've done is use, um, we actually outsource this um, Ultimately, we were using um, a piece of software called Article Announcer, which went out and found sites. But for us, it just became too time consuming. So I found a source on elance.com who specializes in doing that for us. And we pay her a small amount every month. And she has a target of probably 150 sites that we target. And she sends the articles out every two weeks. And they choose which articles they want. And we get reports back. You know, one of the things that has struck me about your business over the years is that you're not really afraid to spend money to make money. Yes. What have been some of the best investments that you've made? Well, one of them has been my full-time office staff. So I have one full-time person who works for me. She is an employee. She's not outsourced. She's not virtual. Um, I like to have control of that. So she works for me and she handles all the operations of the business. So she books my travel. She ships books. She answers the phone and she manages the business that way. 
Um, the second thing for me really was moving the business out of my house because I have found ever since that I have an office space that um, I treat the business as a business. And I know that for so many people we say, oh, just you know, speak about your passion. Um, that, and that's good, but I don't ever want it to become a hobby. So I found when I moved it into an office space and I started paying rent and um, actually looking at it like a business, I went to work every day and I... If I wasn't speaking, I was still working on the business. I wasn't just mowing the lawn or eating. <laughs> or doing the laundry. Or doing the laundry, exactly. So In I your pajamas. During work day, yeah. Okay. Um, also technology. My, um, we spent a lot of money a few years ago revamping our entire um, back-end technology systems. using We use Infusion um, CRM or Infusion um, Soft, and it wasn't not an inexpensive uh, venture, but it runs every piece of communication that we have with our members and our, our community, and it's been a phenomenal resource for us, so having that system in place. Excellent. You know, you've, you've specialized in sales. You, did you always know that you were going to be in sales? I mean, how important has picking a lane and sticking with that focus been for your career? Well, it's been critical. Now, I picked sales because that's all I've ever done, so <laughs> I have never had another career. I've always been a salesperson, so it made sense for me. Right. Right. When I did start, though, I was, you know, well, sales and customer service. And I'd do the customer service stuff, and I wasn't very good at it, and then I wouldn't get invited back. And so I started focusing more and more and more. Although I don't have an industry-specific niche, I do know who I won't work with. And I found that that really helps because my articles are a little bit more tailored. Mm. My blog postings, all of the things that I do are much more tailored towards that business-to-business -business sales audience. And so people come to me more often. That's terrific. You know, we've marked you as one to watch uh, in the future. What's coming down the tube for you? Well, we're really looking to leverage our client base and figure out how we can um, provide them more value. And one of the things that we're doing in our business is actually developing a piece of software that our clients will be able to use in their selling process to help them sell more. And so that's pretty exciting. My husband came on board a couple of years ago, and he is a technology guy. Um, mm -hmm. And he's working with the team to develop the software. We'll be rolling it out to small businesses, wow. um, solo entrepreneurs, and the entrepreneur market to really help promote their websites. Wow. So everything, so your revenue streams, the way you translate your expertise is through many different avenues, speaking being one of yes. them. What else have you got on your roster? Well, speaking is one. Training um, mm -hmm. is another. We have a coaching program. Well, I have three or four coaching programs, di different levels depending, which require lots or little of my time mm -hmm. as well. We have products, so books, webinars, tapes, CDs, all of those kinds of things as well. And then the software product that we're rolling out is another piece of revenue for us. So I really believe that my focus has been on a to be an expert in sales who speak. Mm -hmm. And I look at every speaking engagement not just as the end itself, but as a means to an end to gather and create a community of people who want to hear more from me. So it, the speaking portion almost becomes a lead generation activity for me, paid lead generation activity for me to fund all the other areas of my business. In sales, there are a lot of different people out there, you know, working in that market. How is it that you differentiate? That is a great question. Um, I differentiate myself in a number of different ways. Uh, one, I come out of the corporate sales world. And there are a lot of sales trainers out there who have never sold professionally um, at all. Um, and so that's one thing that my clients are really looking for. Um, and uh, so I differentiate through my experience and my expertise, but I also differentiate because I refuse to leave my clients alone after we have done an engagement. I provide 
um, accountability tools, implementation tools, coaching tools, some free and some paid to make sure that they get the help and the support that they need to actually implement ideas. Um, my belief is I know that the stuff that I teach works if people will use it. And my goal is not just to go in and give ideas, but to actually make sure they implement those ideas. And so many of the coaching programs that we run are very different. Um, I actually have clients who say to me, wow, I've never had anyone want to stay and hold our hand to make sure this stuff gets done and listen to calls and provide supporting activities. So, With the progress that you're making, where do you see yourself three to five years from now? What's the big picture? The big picture. Well, the one thing I love about what we've built is it's created a lot of flexibility for uh, my business, but also for my husband and I. So he was able to quit his job and come and work with me. And we really want to take the business to a place where we have a lot of freedom and a lot of flexibility to live and work in, in whatever style we want, internationally or locally. Um, I am looking to build a business that has a sustainable base of customers who are utilizing a variety of services for us. So I expect the three of us to be producing revenues in the high seven figures because we really want to run a business that has value to customers. I mean, ultimately, I'd like to create a business that can be sold as opposed to a business that relies solely on me and my activity and getting on a plane and flying somewhere. I think the business, the intellectual property inside Engage Selling can be sold to some else when I want to retire and we can live where we want, do what we want. As we continue to profile speakers who make a difference off stage, Renee Godefroy is back with the story of a speaker who literally went around the world to find her offstage calling. Many of our NSA members have seen Kathy Dempsey walking the halls of our NSA conferences, carrying Lenny Shedd, her signature lizard. As it turns out, when Kathy and Lenny are off stage, they are able to make a significant difference in the lives of others. Well, I have a foundation called the Keep Shedding Educational Foundation, and it sends African AIDS orphans to school who have all lost their parents to AIDS. And how did this come about? Well, back in 2005, I took a retreat in Bali, and on my way there, I got my thumb stuck in a trunk of a car and actually broke it. And when I arrived there, the retreat leader said, first thing he said to me is, right thumb, ego, you stuck in the ego. He said, all you Westerners are stuck in ego. He said, it's a miracle you're alive. It's a miracle. He said, first of all, that your AIDS test came back negative, and second of all, that somebody found you in the car before you committed suicide. He says, you don't get it. He said, there are millions and millions of people dying of AIDS in Africa. And you need to, to volunteer for 30 days in Africa, taking care of those people who are dying. And when you, get and get, when you can get up in front of 500 people and tears are strolling down your face, then you get it. So what did you do next? So six months later, I was in Africa. <laughs> And I spent a month there volunteering with the Integrated AIDS Program and working with orphans who had all lost their parents to AIDS. In fact, I spent most of my time in a little town called Nindola, Zambia, where there was over 12,000 people, kids actually, who had died, uh, parents had died of AIDS. And I spent time working in the hospitals, which there was actually no food or medication, taking care of people in their homes, giving them physical, mental, spiritual support. And also, you know, you, you would walk out of hospitals, walk out of homes, and you'd see kids dying on the street. It was actually one of the most horrific 
environments that I've ever been in in my life. All right. How do you use your speaking business to help fund your charitable foundation? Well, four times a year, if an organization is a great fit and they cannot afford my full fee, then I will give them a reduced fee, and part of that fee will go toward the foundation to educate kids. And what is your best advice for speakers who are trying to find ways to use the time, talent, and treasure of stage? What, what's your advice? Find something you're passionate about. Find something that you just can't not do, and you feel like, yes, I'm on this earth because I'm supposed to do this. It's time to get your to-do list ready. Our panel of experts has a new list of little steps you can take to advance your product development, social media, writing, and business strategies. As we break those big tasks into what class? That's right, little actionable items in if you could do just one thing this month. Hi, this is Bill Cates. If there's one thing you could do this month to create multiple streams of income, it would be to develop an internet radio show. Some experts charge for their internet radio shows, though most don't. You'll have to determine if your market will pay for such a show. Either way, you can also use your show as a way to promote your other products and services. And one way or another, a radio show can become a great moneymaker for you. Another benefit of an internet radio show is that you are forced to continue to develop new material, repackage older material, and or interview other experts. As you probably already know, this is a good discipline to establish. You probably tell your audience members to keep growing. Well, I hope you're doing the same. And these radio shows make great value-added premiums to go with other products and webinars and teleseminars. And you can even sell the archived programs. We have about 10 programs archived on our website that we sell for a nominal price and are adding more all the time. Since we have no cost of sale, no product to ship, and no delivery charge, this is like printing money, but it's legal, of course. I've seen several models of how other experts like to run such a program. Some do weekly shows, some monthly, some bi-monthly. If you don't take callers on a particular show, you can pre-record that show and have several shows in the can ready to run. In this way, you can still accept speaking engagements or take a vacation on a date and time your show would normally broadcast. I recommend you always have a couple of shows produced and ready to go so you're prepared for some unforeseen challenge or opportunity. There are a few services out there that will help you host your radio show and make you look part of a broader network. I recommend you Google host internet radio show to see what comes up. Now, I recommend uh, one site. It's talkradiopro.net, www.talkradiopro.net. I think it may be the best of the bunch. Now, they don't take everyone. They're a bit selective. But look at them first, and if it's not a match, try others. So let's review all the revenue streams I've covered thus far in this little VOE segment of mine. We've talked about building your distribution list in the form of an email newsletter or paper newsletter, or both. Building this list is a huge factor in the success of all the revenue streams we're discussing. We talked about the importance of building a specific system or process that, when applied, produces tangible results. Then we talked about putting this system into a video-based training package and then leveraging that system into licensing deals. We've talked about developing a coaching program, offering teleseminars or webinars, and today about an internet radio show. What's left, you may ask? Well, in my final three segments, I'll tell you about continuity programs, boot camps, and cloning yourself. 
This has been Bill Cates. Thanks for listening. Now go do something that produces a result. I'm Chris Clark Epstein, and it's time to talk about writing. By now, you have a piece you spend some time on, gotten some feedback, and are probably wondering if you're ready to post or publish. Nope, more to do. Writing is rewriting. To fall in love with the first draft to the point where one cannot change it is to greatly enhance the prospects of never publishing. Words from Richard North Patterson, who isn't the greatest writer, but if bestseller status is your thing, a very credible source. You need to be willing to work some more and in some cases do it over. Based on the feedback you've received and what your gut says, you know how close to finish your piece is. Please be honest about it. You wouldn't be satisfied with the first time told version of a story from the platform, so why would you be willing to settle for a first time written version of an article? Don't you dare say, but Chris, it's only a blog entry. That little blog entry has a shelf life of about a bazillion years, as near as I can tell, and it has your name on it. Mom was right. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. Suggestion. Many books on writing are written by writers of fiction. Don't ignore them because you know writing the great American novel isn't in your dreams. In fact, Stephen King's On Writing, A Memoir of the Craft, is one of the best books on writing I've ever read. Given our topic this month, you'll be fascinated to see one of his early manuscripts with rewriting notes reproduced in the book. Hey, if Stephen King has to do rewrites. Since only writing will make you a better writer, take a piece you've worked on for a while. Read it again, out loud, while walking around. And I meant that, out loud while walking around. Think it through from all angles. What could you add? What could you subtract? Sit back down and rewrite it. When you're done, compare the two pieces. What did you learn from your rewrite? It's been terrific spending this time with you. I'd love to hear how your writing skills and attitudes are being shaped by these segments. Drop me an email at chris at change101.com. I'll write you back. Hi, Ford Sakes here. What's the one thing you could do this month to help you monetize your social media networking? Well, in previous issues, we talked about things like which social media sites were important for professional speakers. And we took a look at selecting the right keywords and getting your website in shape before you send a bunch of traffic to it. So today, let's focus on creating compelling profiles on those top social media sites. Regardless of which social media, social media networking, or content sharing website you're involved with, they all have user profiles. They all have settings and options you can configure. Make it a point this month to revisit your profiles on those social media sites that you're involved with to make sure you're taking advantage of all their options and make sure you have keyword-rich, compelling profiles. So here are some tips. First, do your research. Take the time to explore each site and see what profiles you like and you dislike and ask yourself why. Then look at your profile and put yourself in the mind of the visitor or the prospect. Does it represent your brand properly or is it a disorganized mess? Remember to use your keywords. Now, we've talked about that before, but it's so important, it's worth saying again, especially when people are searching for topics, groups, and specific solutions. Just like the first tip, search each site for your topic areas of interest and see what comes up. Then review their profile for hints on what you could model. You want to avoid sensationalism. 
People are much smarter than ever before, and hype and blatant promotional efforts or sales tactics will most likely backfire or cause your account to be terminated altogether. You want to stick with regular formatting, don't use all caps or aggressive formatting tactics, and keep it clear and information and value oriented. Create your own profile for your business or your topic of focus. Now that account would be for you to use for your main account. Then create a private persona account. Now this can be an alias or a private personal account that you can use to explore that site anonymously. You can test new features and you can be confidential. It's better to make a mistake with your persona account than it is with your main account. Accounts at most social media sites are free, so this can be an easy way for you to learn. Now that's all we have time for in this issue. So go review your accounts and see how you can enhance your listings to help make more people find you and your valuable content, opinions, and expertise. I'm Ford Sakes with PrimeConcepts.com reminding you to take action every day on your outbound marketing efforts. Hello, Mike Rayburn back with you. You know what? I find that speakers have an interesting combination of left and right brain. The left has the numbers, the message, the business knowledge, the strategies, trainings, sales techniques, leadership and management skills. The right side is the artistic side, the performer in us who wants to get on the platform and connect. While most of us lean harder on one side or the other, the key is realizing as speakers, we really need both. So for this month and next, I will address both sides. And this month is for all of us right-brained, artsy-fartsy types. We know who we are. Well, I just love people. We're totally people people. But let me tell you, we dread the numbers. We don't even want to think about income statements, balance sheets, P&L statements, taxes, or any of that mess. So for us, this is my message. Know the numbers. Make it your goal to know the intricacies of the business side. I say over and over at NSA chapters, this is a business. Quit trying to out-earn your ignorance. And I can say that because I have been guilty of it. I have two invaluable spreadsheets, one of which shows my projected income from bookings and product sales for the upcoming 18 to 24 months. The other is an income statement which shows me my financial position at any given moment and projects my financial position for the coming months in a combination of real and projected numbers. Also, most of us are self-employed and pay quarterly taxes. You ever been caught off guard by an unusually high tax bill, which has the added sting of having to pay a higher quarterly payment for the upcoming year? I have, and it sucks. And it's all my fault, because I didn't want to think about it or take the time. And you know what? There's a way around that. Know the numbers. My spreadsheet is my friend. Okay, thanks. I'll see you next month. It's April, and if you haven't booked your flight yet and uh, signed up online for the NSA Summer National Convention, you need to do so. Joining me right now is Mark Mayberry, our convention chair, and Jolene Brown, who is one of the first vice chairs. Fancy title, Jolene. <laughs> I've been called other things. That's good. <laughs> well, well, let's start with a couple of reasons to attend. Uh, Mark, you were telling me an interesting story before we went on the air about the networking value that you've always gotten. Tell me a little bit more about that. When I think about NSA, and I joined in 1990, and I think at my very first convention, there was a gentleman named Ray Pelletier, who was just an amazing man. And here I was, a young speaker, and just starting out. 
And Ray took me out to dinner. He gave me the opportunity to sit there and ask any question that I wanted to. I mean, it was just an amazing, amazing uh, convention for me because of Ray. After that, there's people like Austin McGonigal. I can think if if you asked me, Jared, to uh, list my top 20 friends in the whole world, probably 17 of them would be NSA members. It's like a family reunion every summer when I come to this. And it's it's an amazing part of this convention is that you get the opportunity to come back, not only reconnect with your old friends, but to make so many new ones. Yeah, that's definitely true. Jolene, from your perspective, one of the things you've been put in charge of is thinking along the lines of our theme of imagine. So tell me what you're doing there. Well, we all come to this conference with where we're at right now, but what I know is sometimes we're not sure what the next little spark is or where it is we're heading. After the concurrent sessions, after the general sessions, or maybe it's that chance to ask a question, we're all going to grow a bit, maybe into places we've never imagined before. And in front of us on those stages will be people who have already made those leaps, and they're so willing to share with us what they have learned and how they did it. And I guess that's the beauty of going to NSA is you're really never sure when you go what you're going to walk away with because we all kind of go in there with ideas of, okay, I want to work on platform skills or storytelling or humor. And then just that spark comes out of nowhere. There's so darn many wow factors that happen at conventions. Uh, And again, it's like you walk in with the expectation and all of a sudden you're just completely turned around and it can take your career to a whole new level. This is so exciting to see how you come in with just a little seed inside of you and with some nourishment and with some direction. What you can imagine may be something you've never thought of before. Okay, Mark, the convention dates July 17th through 20th, but you do want to arrive on the 16th so that you can be a part of NSA's Got Talent. Where do we go to register, Mark? You go to the NSA website, which is nsaspeaker.org. As you head to the NSA website to register for this summer's convention, take a look around at the foundation page because on that page, you have the ability to help a nonprofit charity of your choice. How do you do this? By applying for an Art Berg grant, which will be awarded at the National Convention. With more details, here is Lenora Billings-Harris. Art Berg was a past vice president of NSA. The Art Berg grant was created to provide grants to 501c3 organizations in which an NSA member is involved as an active volunteer. This grant, which is $2,000, is for use in a technology or communication-related project that would benefit the clients of that nonprofit organization. This grant provides an opportunity for you as an NSA member to pay it forward to a nonprofit that you love and are involved with. To get more information, simply go to nsafoundation.org. Lindsay Adams, CSP, President of the Global Speakers Federation, is back with us. Lindsay, when we look at the number of people now choosing to be professional speakers around the world, is it growing? Is it flat? Is it sinking? Where is it? Jared, I'm delighted to say that it's growing. The... The industry, we are being actually recognized more and more around the world as a profession. You think about it. If you go to a website and you click on occupation, do you ever find professional speaker in one of those categories? Never. Never. We're always in the other category. And you know what, though? 
Uh, our member countries, we now have 10 member countries around the world, and I'll, I'll rattle them off for you. There's um, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Malaysia, South Africa, uh, the UK, Germany, and Holland. And we have some candidate members. We have France in formation. And as, as the Federation, we are actually strategically looking at now where, will, where is the next hotspot, what's the next emerging market for professional speakers in the world. And again, we, we're thinking that um, either India, Japan or South America uh, possibly where we will find our next association coming from because our industry is growing. And it appears that some of these newer organizations are just exponentially growing really fast. Yeah, uh, perfect example. The German Speakers Association, GSA, uh, formed uh, two years ago in 2007. They will soon have 1,000 members. They are just growing. It's amazing the work that they are doing in that country. And the, the industry is, uh, is really taking off. What is it that you see internationally that is allowing these organizations to blossom so quickly? Well, I think it comes back to the need for speakers at events and meetings around the world. And again, people are beginning to recognize that when they want a speaker at a conference or a meeting, they want a professional. They don't want um, you know, an academic who's boring. They want someone who, who does this and does it well. And of course, that's what our members do. If I'm going to be a speaking star, I'll have to fly first class. I'll be smug and coy, avoiding eyes as the little people pass. Cause everyone around must know just who I are, baby, if I'm going to be a speaking star. If I'm going to be a speaking star, I'll use my Bluetooth phone. I'll speak real loud so everyone around will know what I've got going on. Everyone around must know just who I are, baby, if I'm going to be a speaking star. Okay, speaking stars, it's time to return once again to our live performance from A Night of a Thousand Starfish, recorded live at the NSA convention. As you'll recall, during the show, a dozen humorists all took a shot at telling their own twisted version of the infamous starfish story. This month, we hear the loquacious, garrulous, prolix, and pleonastic pontifications by the king of eloquence, Mark Sanborn. It is my pleasure next to bring up a man who has just finished a, a taxpayer affair, apparently in South America. Uh, <laughs> A man who can read a grocery list and make it sound profound. <laughs> I've made him do this. You'll hear it on VOE this year. Mark Sanborn. I'd like to share a true story. <laughs> really, it happened to a friend. But, but what is truth? Epistemology is, of course, the philosophy of how we know anything is true, and in the sturm and drang of everyday existential existence <laughs> in which we walk on beaches. How often have you found yourself pondering what is real and what is not? 
A wise old man is walking down a beach on his way to work at the Marine Biology Institute. He's smoking a hand-rolled cigarette with a peculiar sweet odor. When he notices a young man in the distance throwing starfish back into the sea. Hey, kid, he yelled, why aren't you in school with the other kids? The young man fighting the irresistible urge to flip the old man off with both hands. Looked up and said, sir, can't you tell I'm throwing starfish back into the ocean? Suddenly, the old man made the connection between the crunching sound beneath his feet <laughs> and the thousands of starfish blanketing the shore. He said, young man, don't you know the problem that the starfish overpopulation is causing the commercial fishing industry of the New England states? Yes, it's true, because of global warming, and although most sapient carbon-based life forms know it's a crock, global warming has heated the oceans to the point where the spider crab, the only natural predator of the starfish, has been diminished. And the starfish has begun to eat the crustaceans, which are the lifeblood of the New England fishing industry. If you continue to throw starfish back into the ocean, the crazy crustaceans will procreate at a rapid rate, and they will eventually not only ruin the New England fishing industry, but the global fishing industry, precipitating a global meltdown of cataclysmic proportion. The young man reflected on his own father, who was a commercial fisherman, out on disability due to a methamphetamine addiction. And he reflected that perhaps if the fishing industry were to revive in the New England states, his old man could beat the devil addiction and go back to work and perhaps make enough money to buy the young lad the wee he so passionately desired. <laughs> so with that, the young man, seeing finally first and foremost this purpose in life, wandered back into the ocean and started throwing starfish back onto the beach. <laughs> the wise old man, trying to relight his blunt, said... Young man, don't you know, there are thousands of starfish in the ocean. No matter how many you throw back, it won't make any difference. With that, the young man reached over and pried up a particularly plump young starfish named Timmy <laughs> from the secure watery cocoon that sustained the very essence of his life and flung the starfish back on the beach to die a slow, agonizing death under the hot, cruel sun. And he said... It'll make a big difference to that one. No youth rally for the next year, okay? Sanborn, off youth rally list. So let's talk a little bit about what Mark Sanborn did. David Glickman and Ron Culberson are joining me again to dissect uh, the performance. Here's a guy who just, you know, can read the laundry list and be funny uh, doing kind of a deadpan. Your thoughts? I think we both agree that had we done it again, we wouldn't have invited Mark. Uh, (laughs) Actually, I I, I don't mean that at all because I thought Mark was brilliant. And here's where I thought Mark was brilliant. It's the the, uh, incredible power of understatement. And... We've talked about Jack Benny before, and Jack Benny's pause and just his deadpan look, it's understatement. He's not coming at you full force. 
he's coming at you and slipping in little bits of humor under his breath that, that are funny, and they're smart. It's intellectual. He, um, there were some words he used I had to look up afterwards, and once I did, they were really funny. But um, it's just a different style, and it was so effective because it was a great contrast to how some of us may come out there and be in the, in the audience's face. Mark just, just sort of talks almost in, uh, philosophically about what's going on, which is brilliant. <laughs> well, Mark was making fun of Mark. Yeah. Mark was making fun of himself, his use of language, his brilliant use of language. He just took that and ramped it up to a level he would never do in front of an audi- a paying audience. But where did the use of the marijuana come into this whole thing? <laughs> and, and speed of using words, I don't know those slang words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, um, I think the methamphetamine addict was probably, the, that's a funny word, even though it's not a funny condition. <laughs> but, but just, the, 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 again, the language. Who would have thought to put that in there? Because it's a big word, and big words are harder to get through. <laughs> and that, that was just great. Well, we all know that April showers bring May flowers, and here in good old God bless America, you know what time of year it is, Phil Van Hooser? Absolutely. Baseball. Baseball season. Well, try again. (laughs) Well, give me some help. Well, you know, it's tax time in the land of the free and the home of the brave here in America. Uh, So I thought now would be a good time for us to talk about business. Phil, you've been in business for 20 plus years. Uh, You've had a a, a good run, a successful business. So I'm curious, from a business perspective, if you had to do it all over again as we enter spring, a time of renewal, what would you do different in your business? Jared, seriously, over the past 24 months, as I've traveled to and and visited with more than two dozen NSA chapters, believe it or not, I've been asked that same question or some variation of it again and again. This is what I tell people. If I had my business to build all over again, I would do at least two things differently. Number one, I would begin writing earlier and more often. I truly believe that Those among us who are most dedicated to writing regularly are simply better than most of us at, well, first synthesizing their spoken message, categorizing their subject content, and even positioning themselves as experts in their chosen areas. In the end, I see writing as a sound business strategy for for speakers. Number two, if I had to do all over again, I would sacrifice more to save more of what I actually have made. After more than two decades of owning a profitable speaking business, I now realize that I should have been socking more of that revenue away. Okay, so from a savings perspective, are you talking about having pre-planned investment vehicles? No, not at all. I don't pretend to be a financial guru. I have professionals who help me with that on a personal level. As a result, I would never presume to be able to tell someone else what they should do with their money. But I find myself thinking of a rudimentary business lesson that my elderly uncle reminded me of years ago when I was just starting out in this business. At the time, my business was growing and doing pretty well. As a result, I was feeling a bit full of myself. Though I'm not necessarily proud to admit it, for some strange reason I felt compelled to tell my uncle what I was making at the time. I thought the number was fairly significant. Upon hearing the amount, my uncle ignored my audacity, smiled knowingly, and simply said, Son, always remember it's not what you make, it's what you keep that counts. 
Now, more than 20 years later, I appreciate that lesson and the wisdom of it even more. So, Phil, what's the takeaway for our listeners? Jared, as someone has said, it's never too late to do the right thing. When people tell me regretfully that they too should have started saving more earlier, I remind them that the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago today. The second best time to plant a tree is today. In other words, start doing what needs to be done and start doing it now. Spring is a time of renewal. Down here in New Orleans where I live, the azaleas are in bloom, the magnolia blossoms are bursting, trees are green and full, and whether you're taking cues from Phil Van Hooser to metaphorically plant a new tree today, or taking your cues from the optimistic seeds sowed by Gail Davis, I think we can all agree that the cold gray winter is behind us and we're heading into the bright sunlight of renewal and growth. The world awaits you. All you have to do is open your mind to the endless possibilities and imagine. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.